Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. everyone, Sakuya here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast. You've probably already noticed here from the very beginning that Gabby is not with us again. I do apologize for that. She was going to join, but she got sidetracked by having to prepare for the trip that we are getting ready to go to, to South Carolina, because we are going to be doing a LARPing event down there. This is only preparation for that event, so we're getting ready for it. But if you want to be one of my knights and participate in this fight that we're going to be doing down there, click the link down in my description because we're going to be having a ton of fun this coming February. Anyway, the thing that I wanted to talk about here today is I wanted to talk about the HRE at the Holy Roman Empire and the rise of the Habsburgs. And the reason that I wanted to do that is because we just got back from Austria a little bit ago and seeing all of the buildings, the ancient, like everything that is there going back the past thousand odd years for its history is fascinating. I mean, you all know what it is that I'm talking about here. The HRE, like the Holy Roman Empire, the thing that was neither holy nor Roman nor empire, as the classic joke goes. Many people, when they talk about the HRE, they don't really understand what it is that I am talking about, like the scope of it. They have an idea, but they don't really understand how this thing came into existence. It's just something that was for the last thousand odd years. Or I say for the last thousand odd years, the Holy Roman Empire officially lasted from 962 to 1806. What we're talking about here is the one of, not the largest, but one of Europe's largest medieval and even then going into early modern states. But of course, when we're talking about this, this is a entity that its power base was incredibly unstable and it was continually shifting over time. The Holy Roman Empire, as we talk about it, even though I say the word empire, wasn't a single unified state. It rarely ever was. It was rather a confederation of small and medium-sized I don't know how to phrase this. Duchies, counties, other political entities, anything that made up this country, that's what it was. But that being all said, when it managed to speak with one voice, the Holy Roman Empire was easily one of the greatest and most powerful states in the entirety of Europe. And the emperor who was at the head of that was easily the most powerful sovereign. But, of course, I'm saying that more often than not, the varying different member states that make up the Holy Roman Empire, they didn't exactly agree on everything. Uh, And often those disagreements came into serious conflict with one another and ended up being a whole bunch of minor little fights that were constantly going on within the state itself. Other European powers would regularly and very ruthlessly exploit all these divisions, 
and this would often lead to horrible civil wars inside of it. Consequently, when you had very weak emperors who were in charge of the country, they weren't really in charge of the country, and they were oftentimes just outright ignored by the heads of these states that were within it. Strong emperors, on the other hand, if you had a person who was truly powerful, then they could subject these people to their will. But that wasn't easy. Every single time they had to do this, it was a horrible fight to make it happen. They had to fight tooth and nail in order to be able to project any real kind of authority. And to make it worse for anyone who was part of the imperial house, the Holy Roman Emperor was not a person who simply achieved that power by virtue of, you know, their legacy, not legacy, that's not the right word, dynasty. They weren't someone who couldn't necessarily inherit that position from their father. And I say that because a lot of people are thinking, wait, hold on, we're talking about an imperial position, right? This is something where a person would be, you know, they'd come into power after their parent died, and now they're the one who's in charge, like a king or a queen, etc. This is something that works by dynastic legacy. Well, yes, that sort of would happen, kind of, but the real problem within the imperial crown was that this position was something that could be achieved by election. And there was a very severe risk that every single time there was a new election, that a new imperial dynasty to come into power. And as a result of this, in order to be able to prevent this from happening, the ruling dynasty of the HRE over time would have to make serious concessions to members of the college that voted them into power in order to try and get their votes in the first place. This means that as time went on, over time, this would weaken the imperial family's power so that sooner or later, they wouldn't actually have anything to bribe the electors to vote for them in the first place. And then after that, that just meant that a new imperial family would come into power, and then they would have to repeat that cycle all over again. Therefore, despite the fact that the HRE was truly massive, it really only turned into an imperial juggernaut under the strongest of emperors. If there was anyone else besides a strong central authority that was in charge, well, that's where it brings up the classic joke of, in any other circumstance, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman or empire. But okay, that all being said, we need to go ahead and get into the history of this in order to kind of explain it. Because the thing that I want to talk about is I want to talk about the Habsburgs. But in order to be able to talk about the Habsburgs, I need to talk about where the HRE came from in the first place, because this is a thing that has existed for over, well, not over, but almost a thousand years. So during the eighth and ninth centuries, the Franks would carve out this massive realm in Central and Western Europe. And on Christmas Day in the year 800, the Frankish king, Charlemagne, would crown himself as emperor in Rome. This is where a lot of people think that the HRE comes into existence in the first place, but that's not really the case. It's kind of complicated when we go and explain this. Under the grandsons of Charlemagne, the Frankish realm as we know it, that very quickly fell apart. See, what it is that they did, because this was a type of uh, inheritance called gavelkind, where you would split your realm equally among your children. But in the case of an empire, this was something where there still, technically speaking, should be an emperor that was in charge of all of them. They had agreed to split the empire into three parts. You had the kingdom of West Francia, which is, as you can probably imagine from the name, this is the precursor of the medieval France, like French state. You had Middle Francia, or Lotharinga, and then you had East Francia. 
The Third Kingdom is the thing that would eventually evolve into the Kingdom of Germany over the course of the late 9th and early 10th century. Because in theory, in all of this, you were supposed to only have one emperor. The rest of these guys were kings, and Charlemagne's grandsons had decided that the ruler of Middle Francia was supposed to carry the imperial title. That was supposed to be the emperor. But this was not something that would end up lasting and would very quickly break down because the family line of the Carolingian dynasty was going to die out. It was going to go extinct. And I'm going to need to kind of explain the context of this because doing a whole thing on Charlemagne and the rise of the Franks, that is definitely something that deserves its own episode in the future. But the deaths of the Carolingian kings between 875 and 880, that effectively sent the dynasty into just an unstable spiral as regional nobles in varying kingdoms attempted to seize power and assert authority for themselves. With the Lotharingian and the Western kings having died out, the kingdoms were then transferred to Louis the German's last living son, which, I'm going to say this right now, this is an amazing name, Charles the Fat. Which, yes, can you imagine how it is that one gets that name in the first place? You have, like, there's, there's the bald, there's the fat, there's the lame. I just, there's all different kinds of epithets, and just the stories behind them is, oh my god, it's hilarious. Okay, so Charles the Fat, he was Holy Roman Emperor, technically speaking there, from how they were defining it, from 881 all the way to 887. Not very long. He was the king of East Francia, of Italy, and West Francia. And from the year 876, Charles would rule as the co-king of East Francia with his brother, Louis III the Younger, and as the sole king after the latter would die in 882. He would inherit Italy in 879 after the abdication of his eldest brother, Carloman of Bavaria, and in the year 880 would defend the papal states against an invasion by Guy III of Spoleto which I'm going to say this right now, again, name-wise, a person being named Guy, hilarious. Who did this to you? It was that guy. Which guy? Guy the third. Yeah, you can see the joke from, from that. Anyway, he had gone and invaded and was a distant relative of the Carolingians in the first place. And in exchange for his military intervention, Charles the Fat would be crowned as emperor by Pope John VIII. But following the death of his nephew, Carloman II of West Francia in 884, Charles the Fat was then also invited to assume the kingship of West Francia by the kingdom's nobles. And so it was then, for a brief time, that Charles the Fat would briefly reunite the Carolingian Empire after becoming ruler of the three main kingdoms in 894, but that was not something that was going to last. His supremacy was being constantly challenged, and the empire would collapse for a final time when he was deposed in 887 by regional nobles after East Francia was then usurped in a coup by his nephew, which I'm going to say right now is his illegitimate nephew, Arnulf of uh, Carinthia. And so it is then that the Carolingian dynasty has typically been considered to have ended with Charles' deposition. While the Carolingian line would, technically speaking, survive with some individuals who would maintain control in local duchies and little counties and castles, the Carolingian dynasty would never achieve the power that its ancestors had. It would, eventually from that, die out. And as a result, Middle Francia would descend into chaos. That would break apart into the kingdom of Burgundy and the kingdom of Italy. And in the 10th century, the Italian princess, called Adelaide, would ask Otto I, the king of Germany, to come down to Italy and try to settle its affairs because it was currently dealing with a lot of issues from outside invasions. 
So Otto would invade northern Italy, install order, marry Adelaide, and then continue on to Rome. And so it was with all this happening that Otto was now not only the king of Germany, but also through Adelaide's family line, the king of Italy. And with that in mind, this now called for an imperial title to be achieved. Thankfully, and very fortunately for him, the Pope down in Italy was so incredibly grateful for his intervention that he would thank Otto by reviving the vacant imperial title and crown him as Emperor of the Romans. The office of the Holy Roman Emperor was thereby formally transferred from Middle Francia to East Francia, or from this, the Kingdom of Germany, where it would remain for the rest of the Holy Roman Empire's history. That is why this event, when we're talking about this in 962, Generally speaking, that is seen as the start of the Holy Roman Empire, though some historians still regard the crowning of Charlemagne in 800 as the actual beginning of this empire, but the majority now refer to this as the Frankish or Carolingian Empire rather than the HRE. It's just one of those things that seems to make sense, but if you say that the Holy Roman Empire lasted for a thousand years, then you are saying that it began in 800 considering that it would end in the early 1800s. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, okay. Otto is in charge. And his family, the Ottonian dynasty or the Saxon dynasty, that was going to rule until 1024 which is really not all that long of a time, but, you know, it doesn't really matter. They were the ones that at least founded it in the first place. They would incorporate the Duchy of Bohemia into the empire as well. So, okay, Otto's family, the Ottonian dynasty or the Saxon dynasty, would rule the empire until 1024 AD, which is not all that long. That's really only 60 years, considering that we were talking about this being founded in 962. They would incorporate the Duchy of Bohemia into the empire and would expand its borders from that, but they wouldn't really last. Soon after this, the Etonians would be replaced by the Salian dynasty, and the Salians would then add the other leftover parts of Middle Francia, the Kingdom of Burgundy, to the Holy Roman Empire. Thus it was then that they effectively turned the empire into a kind of composite monarchy, where rather than a singular kingdom that makes up the majority of things, the major building blocks of the HRE were going to be Germany, Italy, Bohemia, and Burgundy. And even as their power grew, this didn't mean, though, that they were necessarily safe. The Salians would enter into a major conflict with the medieval church, something that is known as the investiture controversy. And I know that I've said this already multiple times, but that is something that definitely deserves its own episode. 
The short of it is that the growing imperial power of the family in the 11th century raised a very serious question. Who exactly was going to be supreme in Western Christianity? And by that, I mean Latin Christianity. Was it going to be the Pope or was it going to be the emperor? And we're going to skip past all the details that kind of explain this. I'm just going to say that after a lot of debate and a very decent amount of bloodshed, a compromise was eventually reached, the Concordant of Worms in 1122. This is something that although the emperor would retain a decent amount of power, it was going to severely limit their religious influence. In short, the pope was, technically speaking, victorious from this. After all this would go down, the Salians would over time lose their authority, and the next dynasty to take charge, the Stauffers, well, they were going to push the bounds of imperial power in secular affairs to their very limit. So, okay, the Stauffer dynasty. The Stauffer dynasty was one of the Holy Roman Empire's most incredibly powerful houses. Under their reign, the empire was going to achieve its greatest territorial extent. And when we think about the HRE in its classic sense, you're probably thinking about the Stauffer dynasty. And I say classic sense of not the broken kind, but the most powerful state in which the HRE was actually an authority that could rival or rather surpass any other entity in the entirety of Europe. At the height of their power in the 13th century, the Stauffers ruled, in theory, from the southern border of Denmark all the way to the Mediterranean island of Sicily. Their control was that vast. The first Stauffer emperor that we're talking about here, Frederick I, he was called Barbarossa, someone that if you listened to my Crusader episode that I did a while back, then you're probably going to recognize that name. But he was called Barbarossa on account of his red beard. And he would participate in the Second Crusade before he became emperor and would accrue a wealth of military experience at a young age. After his coronation as emperor, though, he was going to be challenged over and over and over again. His rule was not exactly going to be a stable and safe one, even if he was incredibly powerful. Remember, what I said is that in order for an emperor to be powerful, they had to be able to exert as much force as possible to control all the minor little upstarts within the empire. And he was challenged by all of these varying mercantile republics in Italy that were continuously trying to assert their own economic freedom and authority. He would lead over six military expeditions against his Italian subjects. And ultimately, he would make so many enemies that several cities would end up allying against him with the Pope, with also Sicily and even the Byzantine Empire. Barbarossa was beaten from this, and he would return north very bitter over it. Determined for revenge, he prepared another expedition, but then events in the Middle East would take precedent. The armies of Saladin, the Muslim sultan of Egypt and, the, uh, and of Syria, he had conquered Jerusalem. And Barbarossa would, after this, go and join the Third Crusade, intent on reconquering the Holy City. This was not going to end up happening, though, because having progressed quite far on his way to the target, he crossed a river and died. Like, that's just it. He crossed a river and drowned in current-day Turkey. We don't exactly know how, whether that was him falling off of it while in armor and drowning, or being sick, or we, we don't know. But either way, he crossed a river in current-day Turkey, and he drowned, and that was the end of him. His grandson, though, Frederick II, 
that was going to be the ruler that many people attribute as to being the greatest Holy Roman Emperor in history. He would make such an incredible impression on his contemporaries that they called him Stuper Mundi, meaning the wonder of the world. You have to understand when we are talking about an individual for how incredibly impressive they are, that this guy was, he was up there. He spoke six different languages. He was a massive proponent of poetry, of philosophy, and literature. He was incredibly tolerant and welcoming of Muslim and Jewish scholars at his court in Palermo, Sicily. And this religious tolerance, combined with his limitless territorial ambitions, well, um, considering the authority of the Pope and how that was in constant flux, that was going to bring him into an almost constant state of conflict with him. Yeah, Frederick was excommunicated three different times, and Pope Innocent IV would even call this guy, and I kid you not, he called him the Antichrist. Like, that is, uh, that is a very hefty title to be lopped on you by the Pope. But nevertheless, Frederick would see himself as not the Antichrist, not anyone who was actually against Christianity. In fact, he saw himself as a paragon of Christian values and from there would sail to the Holy Land and join with the Sixth Crusade. But what's interesting to note about this, and if you remember the episode that we did on the Crusades, is that contrary to the aggressive characteristic of previous Crusades, considering that they were a literal holy war, the emperor of the HRE did not attack the Muslim world. Instead, he negotiated. He would negotiate with the Sultan, Al-Kamil, and would regain control of Jerusalem from this. So where the Third Crusade had failed militarily, the Sixth Crusade would actually succeed with diplomacy. But as incredible as he was, as diplomatically, as militarily, as amazing in everything as he was, Frederick couldn't outlive death. That was something that eventually was going to take him. And when he died, the Stauffer era would effectively come to an end in 1250 as challenges would come to the fore with increasing intensity as the varying states within the empire would be able to assert their own independence. Or, I say independence might be a little bit too strong of a word, more like autonomy. The Italian republics as well as the northern cities would unite in the Hanseatic League and they would jump into the power vacuum that Frederick's death had created and enlarge their own political and economic autonomy. Inside of the empire, feudal lords would squabble over imperial succession, but none managed to subjugate the others entirely. A new emperor with any real authority was only crowned in 1312, that being over 60 years after the end of the Stauffer dynasty, and this period is something that would become known as the interregnum, meaning between kings. Now, I'm, I'm going to need to go ahead and explain that a little bit, because that is not saying that there was not an emperor during this time period. Many people think that this means, oh, there was no actual ruler, but that's not true. The Great Interregnum, as we're talking about, was the period of time following the death of Frederick II in which the succession of the HRE was highly contested over, and it was fought between pro and anti-Hohenstaufen factions. See, starting around 1250 with the death of Frederick II, this is something that would effectively mark the end of central authority and would accelerate the empire's collapse into independent princely territories, the thing that we think of as the stereotypical HRE. This period would see a multitude of emperors being raised to the throne and kings being elected or propped up by rival factions and princes, 
with many kings and emperors having very short reigns or reigns that became heavily contested because they weren't the only person that was in charge. There was no real central rule and everything began to rapidly break down. As central authority decreased after the stall for emperors, this decentralization process would kick in and transfer power from the ancient feudal aristocracy to the later medieval and early modern burger class, the individuals who would populate the cities. And this is a really interesting thing to note because since money was being reinjected into the economic system and all of these burgers were rising up in power, possession of land, that wasn't the key thing that determined your power within society anymore. It was being overshadowed by essentially having a big fat purse. Now, considering the decrease of power of the aristocrats, that shift in power didn't mean that the empire was becoming more democratic. No, absolutely not. The imperial college, whose members elected the emperor, they were still considered, you know, feudal lords. That's, that's who was in charge. The ecclesiastical members were the archbishops of Mainz, of Trier and Cologne. The secular electors were the dukes of the four nations, the, the primary ones within Germany. You had Franconia, Swabia, Saxony, and Bavaria. And after the Stauffer dynasty, Franconia, Swabia, and Bavaria would be replaced by the King of Bohemia, the Count of Palatine, and the Margrave of Brandenburg. These and other aristocrats would continue to wield great power during the late medieval phase of the Holy Roman Empire, but even as they still maintained their authority, the cities were going to accumulate more and more wealth, and the burghers would manage to press for more concessions from their feudal lords, gradually paving the way for the modern urban society to develop within the country. But I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in here. I'm talking about economic development, like economic developments now within the empire. Where do the Habsburgs come into all this? Because this is the thing that I wanted to talk about in the first place. Well, this is where they come into play, or at least where it is that they start to actually achieve power in the first place. Because if we're going back in history, right, if we're going to be talking about the Habsburgs and their terrible, terrible chins, th their origin is a little bit uncertain. I say that because historians still debate the exact origin of them. It is commonly agreed that the dynasty was born from the Edekinid Frankish noble family, this being something that would later support Queen Brunhilde of Austrasia against Nuestra's Merovingian kings, which it's a whole other thing to get into in the first place. But following the queen's defeat back in the year 613 and the unification of all of the Franks under the rule of Dagobert I during the early 630s, the Edekinids would rise to prominence and from this obtain the Duchy of Alsace, as in like Alsace-Lorraine. Like later on, they would be divided into various branches, including the Eberhard branch that would rule the possessions in Alsace and Bresegal, which is modern day Germany and France. And Radbot, the Count of Klitschkow, well, he was one of the members of the Eberhard Edekinid branch. He ruled a small territory in Swabia in the modern state of Baden-Württemberg, which is near the Swiss border. By the year 1020, Radbot had built the Habsburg Castle in Argal, which is in modern-day Switzerland. And, you catching the name from this, the Habsburg Castle, he would take his name, then, from that castle. And it's from that point on that we actually have records of the House of Habsburg in historical writings. And so, okay, the Habsburg Castle would serve as the seat of the family for the next three centuries. And from there, they would establish close ties with the Hohenstaufen Dukes of Swabia, 
and they would be one of the key points that would help the Hohenstaufens rise to power in the Holy Roman Empire to the imperial throne in the first place in 1137. This was going to be a crucial point for them because the Habsburgs' unwavering support of the new imperial dynasty allowed them to gain a lot of different favors. The death of Count Werner II during the Italian wars of Emperor Frederick Barbarossa in 1167 that allowed them to be rewarded with major land donations in Swabia. And so by the 13th century, the Habsburgs' domain enveloped a territory spreading from the Vosges Mountains in modern France all the way to Lake Constance in Switzerland. The last emperor of the Hohenstaufen dynasty, Frederick II, when he died in 1250, that is where things really begin to change for them, though. Because as we talked about just now, the era of instability called the Great Interregnum would follow this, and the varying different German princes and foreign kings would fight in order to try and take control of the throne. When this happened, the main belligerents that were trying to take things over within the country were Richard of Cornwall, who was actually the son of the English king John Lackland, and Alfonso X of Castile. Despite their very strong titles, the German princes didn't want a foreign ruler on the throne, and so they instead elected Rudolf von Habsburg in 1273. The Habsburgs' staunch commitment to protecting German lands from foreign influence, well, that was going to be a major factor in Rudolf rising to the throne and then maintaining power. But that didn't happen at first. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And I know that a number of you are going to be confused at first because you're going to think, okay, wait, hold on. The Habsburgs have achieved power. They've done it. They're the emperor. Well, no, not exactly. See, Rudolf did not gain the title of emperor because in order to become the Holy Roman Emperor, one has to first be validated by the Pope. And so for a while, he was just king of the Romans. That, that's all that that was, which is still an impressive title, but it's not Holy Roman Emperor. And so it was then that he immediately started to conquer land that had been lost to neighboring non-German realms such as Bohemia. And by 1286, he had managed to firmly secure the duchies of Austria, Austria, and Savinia under Habsburg control. He would ultimately die in 1291, which would leave a strong legacy for his descendants, but he hadn't achieved everything that he needed. And while Rudolf's son, Albert I, would manage to keep the Roman kingship after defeating his rival Adolf of Nassau in the Battle of Golheim in 1298, his son, Frederick the Fair, was not successful at all. He ended up losing the imperial crown to Louis of Wittelsbach. And by 1330, the Habsburgs had failed to keep the Roman crown and were on the verge of losing almost the entirety of their possessions in neighboring principalities 
Like it was about to be over for them. The Habsburgs could have been extinguished right here. Hell, even by the year 1415, the Habsburg castle that they got their name from in the first place, that itself was lost. But despite the major setbacks that were experienced in the 14th and 15th century, the Habsburgs still would manage to succeed in spreading their influence over the course of Austria and Istria. In 1379, the multitude of family members that they had would lead to a split of the dynasty into the Albertinian and the Leopoldian lines. While the former would have control of Lower and Upper Austria, the latter would rule Inner Austria as well as Stria, Carinthia, and Cariola. In the early 15th century, Duke Albert V of the Albertinian line would manage to gain control of Bohemia, Hungary, and Luxembourg. However, his death in the wars against the Ottomans, which is something that I would need to talk about here later because the Battle of Varna is something that's massive, but that death would cause Habsburg rule to break over Central Europe, at least in the meantime. And at the same time that that happened, though, the Leopoldian line, they would manage to split even further. Despite all that happening, Count Frederick would be elected to the Roman throne in 1440. And in 1452, he would be crowned as emperor by the Pope in Rome. This gesture actually gave the Habsburgs legitimacy in order to allow them to rule over the Holy Roman Empire. And from this, they would rule for the next several centuries. Never again were they going to lose the power that they had before. So while in the ecclesiastical capital, Frederick III would go and marry Eleanor of Portugal, building the first familial link with the Iberian kingdoms. In 1453, the emperor would give the title of Archduke of Austria to his family, and following the death of Ladislaus of the Albertinian line, Frederick would inherit the lands of the Albertinian Habsburgs, which would reunify the great house and give them a massive boost in authority. Fast forward a little bit of time, and in 1475, Frederick III would coerce Charles the Bold of Burgundy into marrying his daughter Mary to his heir Maximilian. This being something that would give him rights on the Burgundian succession and gain direct control over the Low Countries, which for anyone who doesn't recognize that, we're talking about the Netherlands. Following the death of Mary in 1482, Maximilian and his father would attempt to gain control over Burgundy itself. They were then challenged by Charles VIII of France, which from this would start a multitude of bloody conflicts between the Habsburgs and Paris, and that rivalry is something that would go on for literally centuries. But anyway, moving on to Maximilian. So Maximilian I would rise to the imperial throne in 1493. And as soon as he got elected, the new emperor was then involved in the Italian wars, which was a giant mess in and of itself. See, the context of this is that following the Hundred Years' War against England, the Valois kings of France had undertaken major efforts to centralize the country under their sole rulership and control, in comparison to the broken feudal state that France had been to a long time, which is something that pissed off a lot of local nobles. And with the death of King Louis XI in 1481, all power was consolidated in the hands of the monarchy. His son, Charles VIII, even looked to expand France's influence abroad, and specifically from this, getting involved in Italy. So invoking a dynastic claim on Naples, Charles VIII would take Milan in 1493, before eventually occupying most of Italy by the year 1495. From that, he prevented the formal approval of the imperial title of Maximilian by the Pope, and from that would drastically curb Habsburg's influence in the region. Because think about this. 
You can't be Holy Roman Emperor if you don't have authority over Rome. That was something that simply could not happen, which is something that is going to greatly weaken his control. Despite this temporary setback, Maximilian would receive a major matrimonial union with Castile by marrying his son Philip to the future Queen Joanna in 1497, which is the daughter of Isabella and Ferdinand, like the individuals that would create Spain. Thanks to a military alliance with the Pope, the Habsburgs then managed to regain control and influence of Italy in 1508. Which is all well and good, but the Habsburgs had not managed to achieve their, I mean, I guess, depending upon how we would say this, greatest conquest yet. I mean, arguably, from taking control of Spain for what eventually would happen, that was going to be significantly better. But when we think about the HRE, and specifically Austria, you think about Austria-Hungary. And what would happen here is that the emperor would set the path for Habsburg rule over Hungary by marrying his grandchildren, Mary and Ferdinand, to Louis, the heir of the Hungarian throne, and his sister Anna in 1515. So Maximilian I would die on the 12th of January 1519. And at the time of his passing, the Habsburgs had several ties to other reigning dynasties. His grandson, Charles, would be elected as monarch of the Holy Roman Empire and become then one of the most influential figures in all of European history. That's something that if you remember that episode that we did back when we were doing the, uh, the book club and we were going into talking about the early 16th century, Charles was one of the key figures in that. And my God, is in an entertaining story. So if you haven't heard that, definitely go back and listen to that episode. But either way, following the death of his father in 1506, Charles had become Lord of the Netherlands. And in 1516, he would inherit the thrones of Castile and Aragon after the passing of his mother. The union of both realms would then solidify under his reign, and they would then form the Kingdom of Spain. And by inheriting the crown of Aragon, Charles had also gained rights to various Italian kingdoms such as Naples, Sicily, Sardinia, etc. And considering what we have been talking about here with France, that was naturally going to set him on a collision course as Francis I de Valois would set claims on some of the things that we just mentioned, like specifically Naples. In addition, the French king would challenge the Habsburgs' rule of the Netherlands as that was right on their border and they didn't particularly like that the Germans were involved in that territory. Following the death of Emperor Maximilian, Charles would be elected to the throne of the Holy Roman Empire in 1519, becoming Charles V. And by the beginning of the 1520s, he was the ruler of Austria, the major German principalities, southern Italy, central Europe, the Netherlands, and Spain. Easily during this time period, even as powerful as he was, one of the biggest challenges that he would end up facing during it was the emergence of Protestantism and the Christian schism that would follow. The emperor invested massive amounts of time, energy, money, and blood to try and stop the Reformation. And while that was successful in Spain and some parts of southern Germany, he unfortunately had to accept the existence of Protestant principalities in the lands of the Holy Roman Empire in the Netherlands. It's just there was no getting rid of it. In addition to the Protestants, Charles had to continuously face France over this time as he surrounded French possessions effectively. In 1521, Francis I would initiate a conflict in northern Italy, which concluded with the Battle of Pavia in 1525. Winning a decisive victory, Habsburg forces not only managed to defeat the French, but also from this imprisoned their king, neutralizing one of the many threats to his rule. By 1530, the Habsburgs would rule over Austria, southern Italy, Spain, and the Netherlands, 
and was completely unchallenged. No power was able to contest Charles V's dominion over the entirety of the Catholic world. Until 300 years later, Napoleon would come along and absolutely ruin all of it. But you know what I'm saying that, my friends, that is not something that I'm necessarily covering here in this. I'm sure that at some point I'm probably going to talk about Napoleon on the main podcast, but, uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying this, I know at the end, I'm not saying this to try and get you all to go and subscribe to Patreon, but if you've, uh, if you heard the previous episode that we did, which was the first episode of that multi-part series that we are doing on the French revolutions, yeah, that whole thing is going to end in Napoleon. So if you want to hear that, make sure to go and subscribe to Patreon because for only a dollar a month, you get bonus episodes as well as ad-free episodes. So you don't have to deal with any of this. But that is where all that story is going to be going. That is where I'm going to be talking about Napoleon on Patreon. Thank you all for listening. I hope from this, you all were able to learn a little bit about the Habsburgs and how it is that they took control of everything here in Europe. And eventually, we're going to be talking about their downfall elsewhere. Though I'm sure that at some point I'm going to be talking about other aspects of that here on, you know, the main podcast and YouTube. My friends, thank you very much for listening. I appreciate all of you. I hope you have a good rest of your day and I will see you next time. Goodbye, my friends. And thank you. kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.